This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security. Here in Israel, we still seem to be on a collision course at this point. Nothing uh, is slowing down the legislation. Nothing is slowing down the protests against the legislation. We will talk about all this. And also a conversation with author and anti-Semitism warrior Dave Rich. And award season in Hollywood fits nicely with our awards on the show today. It's Unholy. I'm Unit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. It's unholy, two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcasts. Much going on as always, but a little bit of Israel did actually come here this week. I mean, you could, having watched the Israel protests on the news and seeing the pictures, etc., you could just hop on the tube and pop up at Westminster Station and there go to Parliament Square and see right near the big statue of Winston Churchill, a group of people draped in the blue and white of the Israel flag, singing how probably Geshet Sameod to completely <laughs> bemused, befuddled <laughs> British, you know, Sunday visitors and tourists who just thought, who, what? I don't know. Oh, 90% of those tourists were Israelis as well. Come on. <laughs> so it was a very improbable scene. And Parliament Square has been the scene of huge numbers of sort of, you know, totemic and defining protests against Brexit 20 years ago, exactly, actually, the Iraq war. And people sort of got it, you know. And this time, I think it was one of those ones where people just walk past and scratch their head a little bit. But very meaningful for the people who were there. It's The crowd is estimated between 1,200 and 1,500. It was a funny, it was a strange sort of combination of, of two groups of people who actually meet much more rarely than you might think, which is Israelis in London and the British Jewish community. And they have very little to do with each other most of the time. Hmm. Uh, Israelis in London often don't go to the sort of Jewish community events and things. But they came together for this occasion. And of course, you know, it was, as you would expect, it began half an hour late. A lot of people, it was too much social going on of people hugging and recognizing each other, <laughs> but very impassioned. And, you know, the cries of Demokratia, although again, only dimly understood by people around, it was very meaningful for the people who were there who obviously have been very exercised by what they've been seeing on the news and hearing on our podcast and elsewhere for 10 weeks to feel they were doing their bit. So I'm quite heartened by this. You went to the protest to report to our podcast how the protests uh, were, or just tell me a little bit about. Well, you I went. I went. I went. Or partly curiosity. Because, yeah, I wanted to see it, and I wanted to be mm -hmm. there, and it was fascinating. Interesting. So, because uh, you, you know, I, I don't know how many times. Maybe this was the first time that something that is so internally Israeli actually spills over and becomes this sort of a protest around the world. We've seen it in London, we've seen it in Berlin and Rome, obviously Washington and New York. Like this is becoming a global thing. And I, I think that's that's really interesting. It just shows how important it is to, as you say, Israelis, expats or living now abroad and to the Jewish community. So that's, that's, uh, that's very interesting. Yeah, and really unusual. I don't think it's ever happened before. Obviously, mm -hmm. there are protests against the Israeli government and Israel all the time in you yeah. know in London, it's not a rare occasion. Uh, whenever there's any kind of escalation of the conflict, immediately there will be people on the streets. 
those are normally avowedly an ambiguity about where they stand on Israel itself and its existence. This was the opposite. This was mm -hmm. avowedly pro-Israel. These were people who were Israeli patriots. They were wearing the Israeli flag. They were singing and chanting in Hebrew. You know, this was is Israelis saying, we care about the future of our country. And why then are they doing it in London? Well, I think it was to make this point that this is something unusual and Israelis all over the world and Jews around the world are really engaged in it. And, um, in its own way, it sent a very powerful message that, you know, what was once marginal, this is becoming a bit of a theme of mine at the moment, but what was once marginal has become very mainstream. You know, I mean, when Miriam Adelson, widow of Sheldon Adelson, you know, the Trump backing rightist is condemning the Israeli government. And, and, and so formerly is, a Netanyahu supporter, of course. Big time Netanyahu supporter. And I think made her uh, objection known in Israel Hayom, the newspaper that's hugely pro-Bibi uh, was. And then Alan Dershowitz saying, if I was in Israel, I'd be in on the protests. You know, these are people who are not familiar as critics of Israel. And yet there they are criticizing this government. So something has really changed. And what was once very marginal, you know, Jews or Israelis, vocally criticizing their own government especially abroad well now it's it's super mainstream and uh and i felt the demonstration last sunday was just a real visible manifestation of that so let's um move on to talk a little bit about what's going on uh, here uh vis-a-vis -vis the legislation last week week i took a risk and made a Bit of a prediction. You might remember that, Jonathan. Um, I said that I have a difficult time seeing the legislation pass as it was written. I'm still standing by that. I think the tone, though, is a little bit different. Last week, I was under the impression that the amount of pressure accumulated from military reservists, from economists, from the protests in the streets are such that they will force Netanyahu to make, and Netanyahu's coalition, to make major concessions. Now, everyone was waiting yesterday for the president, President Herzog, to lay down his plan for compromise and to maybe give both sides this sort of ladder uh, to climb down from. Yesterday, though, it did become very clear that the president's plan would not be accepted by Netanyahu's coalition. It took him about four weeks to formulate it. It took them about four seconds to reject it. So what will have to happen now, and I think will happen now, is that the coalition itself will have to restrain itself. That might be quite difficult for this particular coalition. You might already see these voice of a little bit of dissent from people like David Bitan or from people like Yuli Edelstein basically saying either freeze the, the legislation or make some sort of concession, because if not, we are uh, heading for a collision course in this country. Yeah, I was um, a bit heartened to read about uh, David Bitan and, you know, this quest we've uh, I've been having on the podcast for the last few weeks saying who is going to be the first one to crack and, mm -hmm. you know, and, and delay, calling for delay or a pause seems to me the first move that you would do if you were eventually want, wanting this thing to go away. The first thing you would ask for is, okay, let's just pause for breath. So I'm a bit encouraged by that. I was very encouraged by your prediction last week. And I'm, you know, I'm heartened that you're still broadly there. But I do take your point about the things that have changed. I, I, I wasn't sure what to make of President Herzog's intervention. While on the one hand, admiration for him doing it and for engaging, really using the office. Not, you know, people often call that job of head of state ceremonial. He was making it much more than ceremonial, really substantive. His address, I think his third to the country on TV saying 
that those who think there isn't a real risk of a civil war involving bloodshed are deluding themselves. There is such mm. a risk. That's a really big warning. And yet, despite all that, I couldn't find it in myself to really want this compromise package to succeed. And here's where I am put myself in the shoes a bit of the protesters. And because it seemed to me it went too far. And I, you know, I think I may have, we may have recalled these words of Yuval Noah Harari already, but you, it's very hard to compromise with a tiger by saying, okay, you can eat half my body. You know, that yeah. the, well, the tiger I, won the elections. I'm just saying. So yeah. you're going to have to have some sort of conversation, right? Well, no, you definitely have to have a conversation, but I think, right. that, and absolutely you do. But I think there are some red lines there. Well, once you have this override uh, ability that the Knesset can essentially ra railroad its way through. Now, you know, we don't want to get completely into the weeds, partly because it's sort of a dead letter now, because it's mm -hmm. been rejected. But there were things in there that worried me. I thought it was, as a matter of tactics, by the way, I thought it was very, very smart that the people who said no to it were the coalition and opposition mm -hmm. leaders, meaning leaders of opposition political parties, not the people on the streets, were appearing to do the old Shimon Peres manoeuvre of sort of yes, but... And that mm -hmm. way, they look as if they are ready to be pragmatic and compromise and leave the coalition to be the naysayers. But if it had really come to it, I would have been a bit ambivalent. Maybe that's a better word. A bit ambivalent about whether or not this brokered compromise really would have itself gone a bit too far. Well, look, the, the problem is this. Um, maybe we should just give a brief overview of what, of what Herzog did suggest. First of all, he said, and I think this is very important, he said, let's have a Bill of Rights. Let's finally enshrine uh, basic laws like human dignity and liberty, add to that freedom of speech and equality. These are, by the way, not clearly written in that basic law. They're implied or interpreted. This cannot be uh, in any way amended without a supermajority. I think that's important. He talked about the coalition having much less power in the Judicial Appointees Committee, less than Levine would want, more than they have today. Again, some sort of compromise. He's talking about disqualifying legislation with a majority of seven out of 11 judges, more than it is today, but less than Levine wants. It's all walking in this sort of compromise area. He also gave a loophole for Arya Derry to return to the government and a loophole, and this is very important for the ultra-Orthodox, an ability to be exempt from military service without the high court touching that, making that specific clause court proof. Now, why is this important, Jonathan? At the end of the day, these are not two countries. They're going to have to sit with each other. And what is going to happen, and I, I look, this is what the possible scenario is going to be, right? The coalition is going to say, look, we, we're, we're passing this legislation. We have the majority. I remind you, they won the elections. They have the 64 majority. They're going to pass a certain legislation that's fixed a little bit or corrected a little bit, the protests are not going to die down. They're not going to die down because the protesters are feeling like they're drawing or redrawing the fault lines of Israeli society right before it's too late for them. And then where are we heading? Are we heading for a Supreme Court that's going to disqualify these amendments? Are we heading for actual and actual, heaven forbid, collision between both sides? I mean, we don't want to be there. And on the other hand, if the coalition accepts all of these corrections made by Herzog, they're not going to, but if they had, and a lot of people who voted for them and wanted this overhaul would be so sorely disappointed they would go into the streets and protest. Again, the question is, where are we heading? I don't have a good answer for that. And I think that this week, as it was last week, we're still in a very, very unclear situation. It's interesting you mentioned them going into the streets to protest. A few observers have noticed how few and rare counter-protests defending the mm -hmm. government's plans have mm -hmm. been. So mm -hmm. it's an interesting test that. of are they, are they not there because they think, look, they're going to get their way, they don't need to protest? Or is there not actually such deep or, or, or animated support 
for these changes. I don't know, but it is noticeable that you've this is a mm. you know this is a fight with only one side at the moment. Except one one important uh, example this week when the protesters came to Gafni, who is a member of Knesset from United Torah Judaism, you had a very large group of ultra orthodox protesting against the protesters. I think it's it's a combination of two things, and you mentioned them both. One is again they don't feel like they're losing grip. If they felt that, and and there were reports yesterday that Netanyahu was more willing to go to a compromise. Yariv Levine, the Minister of Justice, was a person who was preventing him. So I think if they had felt that the overhaul was in danger, they would go into the streets. And also, maybe it isn't the most important thing for 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 a lot of them. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, whether it's uh, that's right, they they agree with it, but it's not top of their list of yeah. priorities. That's always a an important distinction in politics. I think on this point about the protests, I was very struck by the one you've just referred to. This protest of reservists uh, going to Bnei Brak, this ultra orthodox, mm-hmm. they were chanting go to the army, to the people living in B'nai Brak. And it just struck me as really significant because that is you know, narrowly defined beyond the scope of the current issue about the judicial overhaul. But it suggests this issue was always bound and certainly has to open up a fault line, multiple fault lines in Israeli society itself, that you are seeing a kind of very particular secular Israel on the march and mm-hmm. yes, it's about the court reforms, but also underneath it, I can't help but feel it's sort of saying, you know, enough's enough of us carrying the rest of the country and yet actually being frozen out of power. And when I say carrying the rest of the country, I mean economically, because it's though, you know, you have an economically inactive sector of the population or less active in the form of ultra Orthodox uh, Jews, obviously, Palestinian citizens of Israel a bit less too. Uh, and also militarily, you know, it's them who do the military service, they who pay the taxes, and yet they're not getting their way here. And mm-hmm. it's, it feels to me as if there was, this has all been a bit pent up for quite a long time. And yes, it's coming out through the outlet of anger at this judicial overhaul, but, you know, it's not going to stop there. And so them going directly to B'nai Brak and saying, look, you know, do your bit, go wear the uniform, do military service and being shouted at back by the ultra-Orthodox there. Uh, you know, this could spiral quite wi- quickly on the lines uh, the president was saying into, yeah, something a very that looks a lot like a civil war. I, I hope not. But you're right about the fact that the people who, who were in the streets feel like they're not, and they really aren't, the minority in Israel. Yet, they lost the elections, but they, they're not in the minority. They might be in the minority in the future, and they want to make this point. We have to change the equilibrium. And as you say, it's not only about the judiciary. Mainly, that's the thing we're talking about. But again, we have to draw these fault lines because we can't be the only ones paying the taxes, doing the military service, and you, the coalition, are saying to us, we don't care about you and we don't care about your opinion. So yes, there's a lot of that in these protests. Maybe we should also mention at this point that this week saw the fact that Israel's enemies are not really waiting by the sidelines, right? We think that uh, the Israeli uh, military echelon thinks that Hezbollah planned a very big terror attack inside Israel. An attacker was caught after uh, detonating one bomb and having another very large uh, bomb with him. He came from Lebanon. Many questions on how he managed to do that without the Israeli military. Terry actually picking up you know, his uh, trail. But this shows you that 
Nasrallah actually, the leader of Hezbollah, said this quite clearly. He said Israel is weak, it is in its crisis point, and that they think that this is the right moment to, to strike, which means that there is a lot of things, to, there are many things to do and many things on the agenda that the government needs to pay attention to. It, it, it can't be only about this for, for a long time. So listen, we can go on and on about the judicial overhaul, but I think there are other topics to talk about. I was thinking about this the other day. Remember when our podcast used to to be one big story from Israel, one big story from diaspora, and suddenly the judicial overhaul came and it took over everything. So we want to focus now on the problem of anti-Semitism with someone who knows so much about it. Our guest this week is not only the foremost authority on anti-Semitism in Britain. He is one of the leading experts on anti-Semitism in the world. He is the Director of Policy for the Community Security Trust here in the UK, which you know monitors and combats hatred directed against Jews. But he's also the author of Everyday Hate, How Anti-Semitism is Built into Our World and How You Can Change It. Full disclosure, I should say that I have known Dave for such a long time that we were both essentially teenagers when we first knew each other. So we've known each other a long time. And also that Dave was a key character, almost a kind of narrator figure in the play that I wrote and we discussed on this podcast, Jews in Their Own Words, which was staged at the Royal Court in London uh, last autumn. So that's all out on the table. Dave, welcome to Unholy. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me on. It's very good to have you on. I've wanted to have you on for quite a long time because each time anti-Semitism is in the news, I've been thinking, okay, the guy we've got to have is Dave Rich. Just just on something that's sort of going on now is, you know, it, it's been perennial for all of your working life that there are anti-Semitic incidents, the group you work for monitor them and tabulate them and record them. There have been politicians, public figures in the world who make comments and remarks about Jews. We are so used to that. But it feels as if there's something been more recent, a new phenomenon of kind of celebrity anti-Semitism, which is not something I was particularly kind of braced for. You know, I'm thinking of Joe Rogan saying Jews like money the way Italians like pizza. Kanye West, obviously, there was a whole controversy around the comedian Dave Chappelle. Obviously, there are famous people who say anti-Semitic things. That, too, is really familiar. But there's something about those three famous men I've mentioned, which is that they trade on pushing boundaries and seeming sort of daring and edgy. And I'm just wondering if this is not a coincidence, that all three are somehow dipping into the very deep well of anti-Semitism. I think there's something in that, and you can add into that pattern the British rapper Wiley, who did the same two or three years ago. And this is a kind of anti-Semitism that plays on the idea that Jews are very powerful, Jews are very rich. If there's things going wrong in your life, in your career, in the world, Jews are behind it. And so therefore, it, it feeds that kind of edgy kind of comedy kind of celebrity status where you're pushing against power you're representing the 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 people who don't have a voice or people who want to rebel that kind of rebellious spirit and it's very easy to kind of play with anti-semitic themes when you do that because these ideas about jews are just so easily available they're very familiar to lots of people so you know your audience is going to get it 
And if you, if you watch, you know, Dave Chappelle's monologue on Saturday Night Live, which is on YouTube, I mean, his audience absolutely gets it and is with him and is laughing at all the right places because it's a, it's an image of, of the Jew, the all powerful Jew that, that is just so deeply embedded and has been around for such a long time. And it kind of feels like, like a free hit. If you're a celebrity, if you're a comedian, there are certain vulnerable minority groups who you wouldn't necessarily attack. Or if you do, you know, you're going to get a lot of heat from your fan base for doing so. But Jews, I mean, who's going to stand up for the Jews? They're powerful. They don't need protecting. They don't need advocates. Uh, so if you're Kanye West or, or, or if you're Joe Rogan, you can joke about this on your podcast and then just move along and everyone kind of laughs with you. And it's like, where's the harm? And I think that's the sense behind it. And, uh, and anti-Semitism does cause harm. And we've seen in recent years with rising hate crimes, but also with terrorist attacks on synagogues in the United States and on, in Europe and on other Jewish buildings. I mean, I mean, anti-Semitism is a violent, lethal threat that is very much alive and with us today. And that terrorism is rooted in exactly the same kind of conspiracy theories. You know, why did Robert Bowers attack the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh? It's because he thought Jews were behind immigration. You know, it's why did Stefan Ballier attack a synagogue in Halle in Germany on Yom Kippur in 2019? It's because he thought Jews were behind feminism and that's why he couldn't get a girlfriend. You know, and so, some of these ideas are crazy, but it's that conspiratorial idea and then at the other end of the pole, you have incredibly famous, very popular celebrities who have a, a phenomenal platform and voice using that voice to basically laugh about these ideas and just reinforce the idea that, yeah, Jews are powerful. Jews love money. What's the big deal? You know, it's interesting that we're talking about the sort of celebrity status and the people who are making it acceptable. And there's this theory that I that really resonated with me uh, from Dara Horn's book, uh, People Love Dead Jews. And she says there, it's not that that it, the left is necessarily to blame for the rise of anti-Semitism or the right. It is just the mere fact that we are moving further and further away from the end of the Second World War. And what was once unthinkable to say against Jews or to do against Jews after the Second World War, of course, is now acceptable. Do, do you agree with that theory? I think anyone who tries to to um, kind of pigeonhole anti-Semitism within one particular political movement is really missing the point. It's not something that is just for the left or the right. If if you know if someone tells you that anti-Semitism is all the fault of Donald Trump or Jeremy Corbyn or, or or Facebook or whatever, they're really missing the bigger picture. That this is an idea that has been around for literally centuries. You know, the core idea of anti-Semitism is the idea. The, the Jews are always up to something, right? You can't trust them. They've always got an ulterior motive, a hidden agenda. They're always working together behind the scenes for something that is good for Jews and bad for everyone else. And that idea you can find in the fringes of every political ideology, every political movement. You can find it in different countries, different religions. And it goes back literally centuries so, and, and it is an idea that has been expressed in so much mainstream culture and mainstream political and philosophical thinking, certainly in, in Western societies and European societies for a very long time, that the idea this was going to just disappear because of the Holocaust 
is was naive, I think. It became perhaps not something you could say in fashionable circles or in polite society to express these ideas openly. But, you know, the, the, the worst anti-Jewish riots in Britain in, you know, modern history were in 1947, not before the Holocaust, but within two years of, of Auschwitz being liberated. You had riots you had against Jewish property and Jewish people in Britain by fascists and other, other anti-Semites who were wound up about the, the ongoing violence in pre-state Israel between uh, the, the kind of the Zionist insurgency and, and the British colonial forces that were there. So anti-Semitism never really disappeared, even in the years after the Holocaust. And I think what we are seeing now is that old protection that that kind of shame and uh, kind of the realization of what the Holocaust meant brought in in mainstream society really is breaking down. You look at the generation, the current new generation of the far right today, and you will not see young neo-Nazis, young fascists denying that the Holocaust happened, which they used to do 30 years ago. You'll see them celebrating the Holocaust, idolizing Hitler and saying, "Let's let's do it again. You know, at least Holocaust now, for all that it was this grotesque, offensive, anti-Semitic movement, at least it contained an acknowledgement that the Holocaust was a bad thing. Whereas the 16-year-old neo-Nazis who are sitting in their bedrooms dreaming about burning down their local synagogue, they think the Holocaust was great and they're happy to tell anyone who wants to listen. And you've written that specifically conspiracy theories, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories are spreading, proliferating among the young. And I had often wondered if it was on the lines Yonit was saying, that was because they didn't have the kind of living memory of the shadow of the Second World War and the Holocaust. But is there something else going on there, given everything you just said about uh, about the limits of, uh, of sort of post-Holocaust memory as a chastening influence? Look, I'm always conscious whenever we talk about anti-Semitism, it's, it's a thoroughly depressing subject. And we're diving straight into the worst aspects of it here. Um, but conspiracy theories are just much more popular amongst young people than they are amongst older people, certainly in Britain. And I expect it's the same in other countries too. So in Britain, uh, 34% of 18 to 24 year olds believe that Jewish people have an unhealthy control of the world's banking system. 34%. I mean, it's an astonishing figure. This was from an opinion poll done last year. And there are loads of different polling questions like this that show that basically if you're under the age of 35 in Britain, you are much, much more likely to believe conspiracy theories about Jews controlling the banks and the media and politicians and so on than if you're over the age of 50. But you're also much more likely to believe conspiracy theories about everything, about 9-11, about COVID, uh, about vaccines, about all sorts of, of different things. And this is because partly due to the proliferation of social media, conspiracy theories as a way of understanding how the world is organized and how power operates and why things happen. It has a purchase amongst younger people. And this may well be because it's much easier to find these ideas on social media and spread them on social media. And that's where teenagers and young people spend so much of their time, but also get a lot of their, their news and information as well as just entertainment. I think it's also because young people have perhaps more reason to distrust 
the kind of established ways that the world is organized and that societies are organized and therefore be more open to things online that tell them, well, actually, it's just the Rothschilds. That's the reason why all these bad things happen and not even know that the Rothschild that they're being told that is is invoking conspiracy theories about Jews and that there's an anti-Semitic heritage to all these videos they're seeing on YouTube and on TikTok about the Rothschilds. But that's really interesting. I have to say that the in the book, I think you write that you're an optimist. And I, I wasn't wholly depressed by the book because it does make mention of, of something that's very interesting. You say, uh, for example, there's a poll in Britain that says 2.4% of people say they're anti-Semitic, right? They say they hate Jews, but the rest just have these notions or these, you know, ideas. But that means that this is not out of malice. It's out of miseducation or ignorance. That can be even redeemed in a way. I mean, that's what you're trying to do, isn't it? To, to, to explain it in a way that people who are, quote unquote, lost can be, you know, redeemed. That's a bit of a Christian motif here, but you, you know what I mean? That's right. So, I mean, you're right. 2.4% of people in Britain give answers to opinion pulses that show they are hardcore anti-Semites. Now, it's a tiny proportion. It's also five mm. hardcore anti-Semites for every Jew in the country, which is, you know, that's the glass half half empty way to look at it. Mm. But anti-Semitic ideas are much more common, much more prevalent. Many more people will believe and express ideas about, about Jews being, you know, too rich and too powerful and, and only care for themselves and so on and so on. And that, you know... Why is it that these ideas are so common when actual active hostility towards Jewish people is so uncommon? And that goes back to the, the very, very long history that the ideas and myths about Jews and about Jewishness have in our societies and in the way that our, our sort of cultural and social sensibilities have been constructed over centuries. But most people, in when you put them on the spot about this question, you'll find they're appalled by anti-Semitism. Once you explain what anti-Semitism is, because most people don't even know what the word means, which is another problem, and half people in Britain have never met any Jewish people or have no Jewish friends, which is part of the picture. But once you explain what we're talking about, about anti-Jewish hatred, most people are appalled by it because most people are either decent or want to be thought of as decent and want to think of themselves as decent and generally to oppose prejudice and discrimination and everyone should be treated fairly. You know, to look on the optimistic side, and I do try to be optimistic about this, this is something we discovered in the UK uh, during the years when the Labour Party was led by Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party was in kind of open conflict with the Jewish community over anti-Semitism, which was a completely unprecedented and distinctly uncomfortable position for the Jewish community to be in. And it all came to a head with the general election in 2019, which Labour under Corbyn lost terribly. And one of the things we were hearing from all over the country during that election campaign and before it is ordinary people who did not know any Jews, who'd never thought about Jews before, who had never thought about anti-Semitism before, had got the message that this is a bad thing and who it fitted in with their picture of what they knew was right and wrong. And I think that sent a really strong message to the Jewish community in this country, actually, that we aren't alone. And for all the, the problems we have, and anti-Semitism is definitely getting worse in recent years, we have a lot of allies. And, and most people, like I say, absolutely abhor anti-Semitism. And if they're put on the spot, they will say and do the right things. 
I think with the book, one thing I've said to you about it is that it, it, it's the same thing about this optimism. There's a kind of generosity of tone about it, which is, and in fact, it manifested itself when your words were you know, voiced by an actor in this play that we did, Jews in their own words. A line that people really responded to was the Dave Rich character saying, look, you may have all these ideas in your head. It doesn't make you a bad person. It just means you've grown up in a society where these ideas and themes are so deeply rooted. And I would see people in the theatre nodding, people who weren't Jewish, because they felt in a way forgiven by that, that this was something that happened. And so that I think is is part of why the tone of your book is different from other writing on this stuff. But since we're talking about the theatre, I've got to ask you uh, about the Lehman trilogy, which you wrote about recently, hugely successful play on on Broadway and on, in London, adaptation of an Italian play, garlanded, left, right and centre. But you came step forward and wrote recently that you thought it was packed with anti-Semitic ideas and and images, just 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 tell us about that and 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 in a way, why only you, as it were, had noticed it. Um, well, I don't think it was only me that noticed it, which is interesting because after I wrote this article, quite a few people got in touch with me and said, "I'm really pleased you wrote that article because I felt exactly the same way when I saw the play, but couldn't understand why nobody else had said so." So this is a it, it is a play, uh, a three-act play. It's nearly three and a half hours long, telling the story of the Lehman brothers from when they arrived in America in 1844 up until the day in September 2008 when Lehman Brothers Bank collapsed. And that became the, 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 the symbolic moment of the entire 2008 economic crash and the banking crisis that surrounded. And... Look, it's a fantastic play as a piece of theatre. I mean, it's brilliantly written and acted and set, and I'm not surprised it's won all the awards it's won. But alongside this story of greed and immoral acquisitiveness and irresponsibility and eventual disaster, the play is absolutely saturated throughout with Jewishness. Literally in the opening lines the elder Lehman brother, Henry Lehman, arrives in America and it says, Henry Lehman, a circumcised Jew, is how he's described. And in every scene, there are Jewish references. I mean, they pray together. There are, there are quotations from the Talmud. There are, they kiss the mezuzah on their shop every time they walk in. They sit shiver as people die. And then there are the really gratuitous additions so there's a scene where um, one of the brothers is choosing a wife and he has 12 women to choose from. And each woman is given the name of a Hebrew month in the script, which actually took me only about by the fifth or sixth month that I realized what was going on. Then there's another brother who, uh, you know, he um, he's trying to woo this woman who he wants to marry. And he tells her, I'm one of the richest Jews in New York. Right. But he's one of the richest Jews. But every time he goes to her house, there's a running joke that he won't buy a new bunch of flowers for her. He uses the same mangy bunch of flowers every time because he's too mean to buy a new one. There are loads of these things in the play. But what I wrote was that it it was anti-Semitic at a very profound level, not in these kind of glib references to Jewish millionaires, but in the way that by making it so Jewish, it it created this idea or it inhabited this very old idea that the whole world of banking is Jewish. The whole world of trading is Jewish. 
that all the kind of weird abstract financial instruments that no one understands that brought the whole thing collapsing in 2008, these were invented by Jews and they have a Jewish character and that Jews sold them to the world. And that to me is is the message that the Lehman trilogy sells as a play. But I think most people don't notice it because it's it's just, you know, to use a phrase, it's priced in that this is a Jewish thing. <laughs> and because it's not crude, it's not done in a crude <laughs> way. It's done in a really sophisticated way that fits exactly, it, it slips into the tracks of thinking. You know, I liken it in my book to if you're, if you're out hiking in an unfamiliar pl- part of the country, you will just naturally follow the path that has been trodden into the ground by all the hikers that have gone before you without even thinking whether it's the right way to go. You just follow it. And that's how people follow these lines of thought about Jews and money and power. I have a little bit of a confession to make, because when Jonathan says you were the only one who noticed it, he's not exactly being accurate. I have to admit to you, Dave, that I talked to him about this play about a year and a half ago, and I told him that I loved it. And then he said to me, did you not, were you not bothered by the fact that it's anti-Semitic? Now, the moment he said that, I could literally hear my the penny drop in my head. And I said, okay, you have a point there. But it was really interesting to me. And we had the same discussion a few weeks ago about Dope Sick, the TV show about uh, America's addiction to opioids and the, specifically the Sackler family, of course, in Oxycontin. And he said to me the same thing, right? It's, it's anti-Semitic. And it made me think, as an Israeli, that maybe there is an issue of sensitivity here, that maybe I'm a little bit less, you know, sensitive to it. Uh, or, or not in tune. I'm not saying that there weren't Israelis in the in the theater watching uh, the Lehman trilogy and thinking to themselves, "This is anti-Semitic." There were, but there is a little bit of a difference in volume here, don't you think? I'm asking the two Englishmen in this conversation that maybe there is a little bit of a difference. There is. It's, it's interesting you mentioned dope sick because I thought dope sick mm-hmm. handled the fact that the Sackler family was Jewish in a very different way from the Lehman trilogy. I thought so too. Yeah, in a much less problematic way, I would say. Mm. I do think there is a difference between diaspora sensitivities and sensibilities regarding anti-Semitism and Israeli ones. And there's no getting away from the fact that if you grow up in a diaspora community as a minority, mm-hmm. that brings certain sensibilities about how to firstly, recognize anti-Semitism, but also how to deal with it and how to get along with living in a society where you are a minority and where anti-Semitism is kind of part of the furniture, part of just the background ambience. Even if it's not really very active or in your face, it's, it's always there. And I do think that's very different from growing up in Israel, where Jews are the, are the majority. And that's, that's not to, to, to dismiss the very real issues and concerns that, that are in play there. But I think people do bring different perspectives. And, and in a way, it's, it's interesting because I think there's always been also, also, until recently, there's been a difference in perspective between European Jewish uh, responses and perspectives on anti-Semitism and American Jewish responses. And for years, I always found uh, uh, American Jewish organizations and leaders had, had a, a really admirable self-confidence that anti-Semitism was not their problem. It was a problem in other countries. And I think in the last few years, you've seen a real change in that, actually. And, and, and that self-confidence has been somewhat shaken. But you definitely get these different perspectives on it, depending on where people are from. Since we are talking about two different television and, and theater, and they're both, I mean, the director of, of uh, Lehman Trilogy is uh, Sam Mendes. He's Jewish. The creators of Dope Sick are Danny Strong and Barry Levinson, all Jewish. Does that, how do you see that as a, as a fact? 
Look, we're all products. Does that we're all products of our society, you know. And these ideas are here, whoever we are. These anti-Semitic ideas and stereotypes and, and 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 ways of thinking, they exist as the framing for how to critique Jewish things and Jewish people and 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 Jewish organizations and structures and so on. And they exist for everyone. And it takes a conscious effort to step outside them. Now, Jewish people obviously are less likely to fall for that stuff, but it still happens. And there are loads of examples I'm sure we can think of. This is why I'm, I'm always a bit reluctant to just jump to condemning people for using uh, anti-Semitic language or playing with anti-Semitic ideas, especially if it's, if it's not conscious and it's not deliberate. I always think people deserve the benefit of the doubt and the opportunity to learn from it. You know, I, I, rather than try and peer inside people's psychology and work out why they've done it, I, I always think, okay, put to one side who's written this and who's acting it and all the rest of it. Let's look at the actual ideas and the language and how that's being transmitted and what your average audience is going to think of this. Yeah. You know, I always think of um, South Park, right? South Park, very successful and very funny cartoon show and it has this running gag through series after series of the anti-semitic kid who picks on the jewish kid and sometimes it's very funny and sometimes it's just a bit too close to the bone and makes you quite uncomfortable and of course you know some of the writers and creators of south park are jewish and they're, they're playing with these ideas but i always think how many kids are there in the world who their first and perhaps only exposure to jews and anti-semitism is watching Kyle and Cartman arguing with each other on South Park. And what does that leave with these these kids? And then where do you take that? Just for the record, by the way, on Dopesick, which I loved, there was a reference to the family being Jewish, which seemed to me wholly crowbarred into the text. I didn't understand where it came from. It didn't feel organically part of the story. That said, I defer to you on saying you handled it much, much uh, better than anything else we've talked about. So no, it was just a small observation. But I wanted to go on to Israel because you and Yoni were talking about whether the different perspective of a diaspora Jew and an Israeli Jew. And the, Israel is really vexed when it comes, uh, or the quest topic of Israel makes um, any discussion of, of anti-Semitism vexed. And you even touched on it earlier when you said the biggest you know, anti-Jewish pogrom or sort of race riot was in 1947. And it was prompted, triggered by, related to, you'll find the right words, events in what was then mandatory Palestine. You know from your work, the, the, the organisation you work with produces annual figures. And it always shows that if a year has included, you know, or, or has seen Israel at war involved in military action, then anti-Semitism in that year spikes. Now, how exactly are we meant to talk about this. I, I suspect you don't want to say that Israel causes anti-Semitism and cause and correlation, not the same thing. But yet there are the figures that when Israel is at war or involved in escalating military conflict, you can go straight to your charts and they show that attacks on Jews go up. So how do we talk about this relationship? It's very complicated, as you say. Um, and you're absolutely right. This is this is what happens whenever Israel is at war. We get a big spike in uh, hate crimes against Jewish people and synagogues and Jewish organizations in the UK and in lots of other countries as well. The last time this happened was in May 2021 when there, there was the, the two-week conflict in, in Israel and Gaza. And, you know, lots of people, I'm sure, saw the, the convoy of cars going down Finchley Road, which is a, a, a main arterial route through a Jewish area of North London. And, and 
it was a convoy of cars with Palestinian flags shouting the most vile, violent, anti-Semitic, um, misogynistic abuse about Jewish people out the windows. Um, and there were also incidents in the United States and in other countries during that period as well. And the numbers show every time this happens, you get this spike in, in anti-Jewish hate crime. Now, in terms of who's responsible for this, who causes it, well, the anti, the people doing it are responsible for it. We, I would always describe it as anti-Semitic reactions to the conflict in Israel causing the hate crimes rather than the conflict itself causing it. I think anti-Semitism has been around for far too long for us to say that anybody now can suddenly cause it to be there where it wasn't there previously. It's something that's always available for people. And I think a lot of these hate crimes are people who don't like Jews anyway and use the fact that Israel is is in the news and uh, as an excuse, as a vehicle for it. But what interests me is why this happens when Israel has a war, but it doesn't happen when anyone else does. So there was no wave of anti-Russian hate crime in Britain in February uh, of last year when Russia invaded Ukraine, nor was there in 2014 when Russia invaded Crimea and, and shot down a Malaysian airliner. We don't get waves of hate crimes targeting people in relation to the war in Yemen or Turkish suppression of Kurdish nationalism or other conflicts around the world. Uh, you don't get 100,000 people marching through the streets of London to complain that Saudi Arabia is the biggest purchaser of British arms in the world and uses those arms in, in a war in Yemen that has killed more people than the entire Arab-Israeli conflict. So it's, the, it's this differential that I find really interesting. Why does it happen with Israel and with Jews, but not with anyone else? And I think that's what leads us back to, may not even be what I would say anti-Semitism, but the fact that people find Jews interesting and relevant within our own societies in a way they don't necessarily with the people involved in other foreign conflicts, overseas conflicts. People, there are, there are people in Britain, and again, it's a minority of people, and I always stress this when it comes to anti-Semitism, it's not most, but a minority of people who feel the conflict in Israel in a personal way, even if they are not Israeli or Palestinian, they have no personal connections to the actual conflict, but they feel it, it's part of their world. It's not part of something that, that is foreign and alien. And it's, so it's that, it's that difference that I think really opens up interesting questions and interesting conversations about why is it that Israel triggers such a reaction when other people don't, other conflicts don't. The book is Everyday Hate, How Anti-Semitism is Built into Our World and How You Can Change It. It's out now. Um, Sasha Baron Cohen says on the front, everyone should read this book. So I think that's, you don't yeah. even need there's the a, recommendation. There's a blurb by Jonathan Friedland inside as well. There I is, but I think um, <laughs> Sasha may sell just a smidgen more copies than me. <laughs> um, really good to have you with us, uh, Dave Rich, on Unholy. Thank you, Dave. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. That was such an interesting conversation. There were so many bits of it that I kind of wanted to hold on to. Do you know what I mean? Like the part where you talked about the uh, people who used to deny the Holocaust, but at least they were deeply embarrassed by it, or at least they wanted to deny it happened. And today it's a whole different, you know, it's a whole different attitude. But I, particularly, I hope it didn't come out as being callous around the whole issue of 
that you and I, I think, have a different sensitivity to anti-Semitism. What I was trying to say was just that, I mean, obviously, when you grow up in Israel, you're attuned to the clear and present danger. So you're listening out for sirens or bomb blasts or terror attacks. If you grow up in diaspora, you're attuned to your clear and present danger, which is listening to anti-Semitism and trying to, you know, listen where that happens. So I imagine there's a difference in insensitivity around that. Am I being at all articulate? I, mean, I don't know if I'm articulating this properly. No, completely. Of course, But in a way, of course, there would be a difference. And right. wouldn't it be a massive indictment of Israel as an idea if you were as attuned to it as somebody right. who lived outside? The whole point. Right. The whole raison d'etre is to protect Jews from anti-Semitism. Yes. Right? And so, for it to, yeah. and you know, if you go back to the very first sort of, you know, forerunners and founders of this idea in the 19th century and into the 20th century, what they were after was a place where at last Jews would be free of that constant concern and to living in their own society as a majority rather than a minority. To me, it makes total sense. And it's absolutely should be like that, really, that um, that you're not sort of on a st- on a, in a state of kind of vigilance. And I think what's interesting about Dave is that he is vigilant and he's got that ear attuned to it. And yet somehow he's not that person who is always ready to sort of pounce and condemn and who makes it the center of his you know jewish life weirdly he you know he's Mm -hmm. interested in plenty of other stuff he's not kind of neurotic about it i suppose is what i'm saying and and there is this tone in the book it's tremendously sort of humane it completely uh, sort of empathizes with people who find themselves in this stuff because he says look you know how would it be any different? This is the world we've all grown up in. And I think that's a way forward, really, rather than that sort of scolding, condemning vibe, which often people who are combating anti-Semitism in an organizational way, they find themselves trapped in that. And he, I think, has found a way out of it. So it was very good to hear him speak. Um, okay, award season now. I mean, award season on Unholy, not award season in Hollywood. Um, Every week is award season. <laughs> we have the red carpet out week after week. We do, we do, and all the um, stardom and glitz. Um, okay, so first chutzpah, I think? I think so. Naturally allocated to me, of course, <laughs> being the Israeli among the duo. So I will give it this week. I, at, at this rate, we can make it the uh, chutzpah award uh, named after Itamar Ben-Gvir, uh, Israel's national security minister. Many reasons maybe to give it, but specifically we wanted, uh, in this uh, the context of this podcast, to give it to him for suspending a program to combat violence in the Arab society. It's a program funded by the joint, and he said that he's doing it because the joint is, I quote, left a left-wing organization. Now... I will put aside the fact that uh, he is also the national security minister of people who voted for the left, but also just to mention, maybe we should, that the joint is probably the largest Jewish humanitarian, not probably, it is the largest Jewish humanitarian organization. It helped uh, Jews in World War One. It helped Jews in World War Two to escape Nazi Germany. It es- established uh, community centers all over Israel, assisted Aliyah for half a million Jews. Should I go on, Jonathan, to explain why the joint is actually an organization that should be lauded and not attacked by the national security minister? I can go on. But you I you mean, can go on. I, I love this um, choice because it goes to, I mean, you're, it's totally right. It's just outrageous chutzpah, obviously. But it does go to this point that I think um, the right suddenly find themselves branding everybody who isn't on board, including just the absolute mainstream of the Jewish world, as 
leftists. I mean, it happened at the at that counter protest at Bene Brak, calling army reservists, you know, traitorous leftists. Um, and you, you know, as and I said, anarchists, anarchists, and, and don't forget anarchists. The, the, him that branding everyone been, as anarchists. That word has certainly been thrown around, uh, <laughs> even in quite proximate quarters. The words are emptied of all meaning if you suddenly brand a, a sort of movement that now includes Miriam Adelson and Alan Dershowitz and the elite fighting force of the Israeli military. All these people are somehow dangerous, traitorous leftists. What words do you have left for the actual left? You know, you don't. And so absurd and outrageous, uh, florid chutzpah from Itamar Ben-Gvir. I'm going to let somebody else hand that award to him. Uh, That's one award ceremony I don't necessarily need to go to in person. But let's talk of uh, our Mensch Award is somebody who was on the actual LA Hollywood red carpet. And that is the actor Ki Hui Kwan, who was famous a long, long time ago as a child actor uh, playing the part of Short Round in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. He is Vietnamese-born from a Chinese uh, heritage family and said um, that he had begun promisingly as a child actor, but essentially had to sort of give up acting because there just weren't parts for Asian-American actors like him. And then has come roaring back with uh, this film, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, and done brilliantly. Um, and so great for him. I mean, the comeback of all comebacks, I think for, you know, nearly 40 years separated his first performance from this one. But the the talk that really took me, I think he would appreciate this award even more than being Unholy as Mensch of the Week, is there is some talk that the a fifth Indiana Jones movie is coming. And some talk that the franchise is going to have to move on from Harrison Ford, who has turned 80. And therefore, who will be the new Indiana Jones? And people were suggesting, why not him? As in still the same character, that you could, it would still be embedded in the narrative of Indiana Jones that somehow all those years ago, he inspired young Short Round to become the great archaeologist action professor for a new generation. I love that idea. I think that should be, I think there's talk of Phoebe Waller-Bridge or something. I think the new Indiana Jones should be uh, this week's Mensch uh, of the Week, Ki Hui Kwan. I can't say you heard it here first because it's somebody else made that suggestion, but it's a good one. And I think that would be a worthy winner. Well, first of all, we have to say that the hug between him and Harrison Ford on stage when Harrison Ford uh, declared this movie, uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once, wins the uh, Oscar for Best Picture was just a beautiful moment. Everything Everywhere All at Once, also the title of the Israeli Judicial Overhaul. But never mind. (laughs) What I did want to say was that it, it, first of all, we love Indiana Jones on the podcast. We have to say that, right? I mean, archaeologists are cool and he fights Nazis and it has the best line ever in an American movie. Remember that when Harrison Ford sees that he enters this Nazi headquarters and he says, Nazis, I hate these guys. So we like that. We like... We like Indiana Jones, and we like this story. So I think it was unanimously, unanimously. Yeah, some question, some dissension between us on what is the greatest line in any movie ever, because obviously I'm having <laughs> okay, what I'm she's sorry, having. I will, I, you're right, you're right, you're right, right. Accurate, uh, best line in Indiana Jones. Yes. The second best line in Indiana Jones has to be, Americans always overdressed for the wrong occasion. But... I know that's not the best. Obviously, your favorite line will come from When Harry Met Sally. I know that. I know it that. is encyclopedic, your knowledge of uh, cinema. The way you remember these lines, it's uh, yet another skill that you have shaming the rest of us. Um, if you have enjoyed this week's uh, Unholy, remember to mention it to your friends. Um, I mentioned at the demo in, uh, on Sunday in London. 
It was very good to be with what I estimated was a very large slice of unholy listeners. I wondered if you brought your unholy t-shirt. I was wondering, maybe selling some merchandise if there's already an opportunity. That would be one of those places where that could really fly. Um, So it was very, (laughs) very good. If you, um, there were several people who came up to me to say they are regular listeners to this podcast. So a shout out to you, but anyone else who is uh, spreading the word, we are grateful. We are indeed, and we always say our thank yous to Gaia Glaser, Omer Prima, Trom Atik, and Yair Bashan, and we shall meet next week on Unholy episode 99. Jonathan, I know you're keeping count, so I'm just letting you know. In cricket, they call this the nervous 90s as you approach the century mark, so we're in that exact phase. Yeah, see you next week, Yoni. <laughs> see ya. This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security.